Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Do you ever feel like an outsider? The cliché image that comes to my mind would be of an orphan, kind of in rags, dishevelled, walking along a street. It's dusk and they are looking in at a wealthy family in a beautiful home. And it looks like they're having great joy and fun together around a wonderful, luxurious meal. And it's the other side of the glass and, and the orphan finds himself on the wrong side. Maybe the experience for you is in your workplace and you're not your boss's favorite. He's got his sort of inner sanctum, his favorite team, him or her, and you're not, you're not in it. You're an outsider to that. Or maybe it was or is um, part of your education, the classroom. You weren't one of the cool kids. You were never in the kind of cool gang and all of that. Whatever it is, there's this sense that you just don't feel like you belong. Hi, my name is Howard. It is my privilege to lead the historic church Westminster Chapel. And we are in a series called Unashamed based on Ephesians chapter one, this amazing first century distillation of the beauty of the Christian faith, which is so misunderstood by many in our world today. This outsider syndrome is so common for many people. This sense of not being good enough and therefore feeling excluded and unwanted. And that can be true for a lot of people because of their experiences in the past and in the present, which make them feel like they don't fit in. They're not welcomed or not good enough to be welcomed by others. But actually, I think it's more pervasive than that. It's not just the experience of some. I want to argue that it is the existential experience of every single human being that's ever lived. In many ways, there is a deep desire or longing inside each of us for something more. And all the best bits of this world, all the wonderful things that bring joy and delight to us, they're about sort of tantalizing teaser trailers to something beyond, something beyond that they're a signpost to something more. If you like, they're the, the gray shadowy pencil sketch of a glorious fully colored oil painting that they're, they're a clue to something. And there are moments, maybe minutes, where we can feel as we enjoy these things that we're transported to this other world. It can be in the embrace of a loved one. It can be in the, being the recipient of a random act of kindness from a stranger. It can be listening to Handel's Messiah played by a wonderful orchestra coming together in unison. It could be watching the brilliant musical Les Miserables at the theatre, just whoa, being transported beyond to this other world that's, that's glorious, that's taken me there for a few moments, like, like you're in a dream, only that you wake up and you realise it was just mere illusion, just momentary, just disappointment that's not fully real. The brilliant Professor C.S. Lewis 
author of the Chronicles of Narnia, himself an atheist who became a believer. He is brilliant, by the way. I would encourage you to read him. Start with the, the book Mere Christianity in just an incredible sermon called The Weight of Glory. He's describing this experience. He says this. Now we wake to find that it is no such thing. We have been mere spectators. Beauty has smiled, but not to welcome us. Her face was turned in our direction, but not to see us. We have not been accepted, welcomed, or taken into the dance. He describes this resulting in a kind of painful sense of opining for something more. The sense that in this universe, we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire for glory, meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Let me say that sentence again. The door on which you have been knocking all your life will open at last. He goes on. Apparently, then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy. We do not want merely to see beauty. Though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with beauty. <sighs> to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Wow. This leads us into the first of three points I want to make to you today. The invitation to be part of the inclusive gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. You can live on the inside. You can be in the room where it happens. You can live on the right side of the door because of two wonderful words here. You also. And two types of people who are included. Let me start. First, Paul. He's writing the letter. He was a Jewish killer of Christians, a proud, judgmental, sinful, arrogant Pharisee who thought that he could earn God's approval and goodness by doing all the sorts of good things. And he's writing the letter and the gospel comes to him first and to his people first to welcome and, and include them, to recognise that they can't be accepted by any of that, but they can only trust in Christ's saving works. And then he says something quite extraordinary. You also, you Gentiles that he's writing to, you can be included. This is truly breathtaking because to the Jewish mind, they saw Gentiles as dogs, the licentious, immoral ones, 
They were into witchcraft and false god worship of all kinds, sexual immorality, having sex with temple prostitutes to try and please fertility gods to impress them. All sorts of immorality was going on amongst them. And yet God would include them. Yes. And God's going further. That was always his plan. They were predestined for this. God had chosen to save not just one race, but a people and tribe of every tongue and nation on the face of the earth. This is part of his ultimate plan of the cosmic reconciliation of all things, which is to be made manifest in the reconciliation that's taking place in the church of not just man being reconciled back to God, mankind back to God, but mankind to each other, despite their diversity through God in Jesus Christ. That's why there's just no place, there's no place for any forms of racism or division in the life of the church. We're both included, welcomed in, not because of any past goodness or badness or anything, only because of the works of Jesus Christ. We're not trusting in our own works to save us, we're trusting only in God's works. And these two come together. If you like, it's the proud elder brother in the story of the prodigal son, or better, the prodigal God, full of legalistic self-righteousness. Yeah, you can be included because you can be included. If you trust in Jesus and, and surrender your faith in all those false works that you think are good but are not, you can be included. And then the, the prodigal son himself, who's gone off in licentious, wild living, squandering, wants his father dead, turns his back on him, like turning back on God and doing whatever he wants with his life. Yeah, you can be welcomed back in too. And the moment that you come to your senses and you trust in Jesus Christ, you can be brought in and the two together will become one, this beautiful family of God. And you go from being an outsider, excluded, to being included, to being part of the beloved family of God. And this silence is shame because you're included you're wanted where it matters most you belong to God himself and you're part of his family now this is wonderful and so whether there are moments in your earthly existence where you feel like you're excluded that you're on the outside whether it's at work or in in your community around you or whatever's going on you can take confidence and strength and say I can live with that exclusion because I'm included where it matters most Wow, this is a, a weight of glory that's given to a believer. The acceptance, the affirmation, the welcome, the embrace of God, and also as part of his family, that we experience this as being part of the family of God, heirs together of all the promises of God are ours. Wow, you're on the inside. If you've got faith in Jesus, you are on the inside. Take courage in that. Give thanks to God for that. Point number two is the true gospel. The good news is capital T, truth. Verse 13 calls it the word of truth. It's truth serum for shame's poison. We believe so many lies, so many of shame's lies. And I believe we give them more weight than they're due because there is an underlying foundation of lies we've believed about the very nature of truth that have infiltrated us, that we would undermine the truth of God's word. 
It's the postmodern invasion, this infiltration to say that truth is relative and therefore biblical truth is relative to make us question its trustworthiness, its strength, its robustness to rely upon and truly believe. Postmodernism is a little bit like the game, the children's game, Join the Dots. The dots are the facts and they're numbered. And the meaning is how those dots are joined together. And so there's number one, number two. And you could have other forms of meaning, but postmodernism simply says join those dots up however you like. Doesn't matter how they're numbered. Number them yourself or don't number them at all. The way they all connect, that's for you to determine. You are the ultimate determiner of meaning, of therefore truth itself. I used to think that. I kind of was like a sponge put in this dirty puddle of a postmodern culture and absorbed that way of thinking as a non-Christian. And in my journey to faith and being exposed to believers, I ended up writing a letter to a uh, very well-known evangelist, and it's recorded in this book. As I make my journey in life, I have found many truths through my experiences. And in this sense, I am slowly building myself a center, has no limits or boundaries. At least in this view, I would like, at least this is the view I would like to adopt. Unfortunately, my faith in this belief system is sometimes undermined. I have nothing greater than myself from which to draw strength, yet this implicitly seems right. This postmodernism puts a crushing weight of pressure on an individual to be the person who decides truth. And in our moments where we're not being extremely arrogant, we have to recognise that we don't have the experience, the skills, the qualifications to take that role. Many of us then will turn to other groups, often of human beings outside ourselves, to try and shore up and robust our thinking about what is and isn't true. And many would turn in those instances to, to science. But science never makes the claim to be the ultimate arbiter of truth that would say that it can't make moral judgments or aesthetic judgments. It can't tell you what to do with its discoveries, like nuclear, whether you should make nuclear weapons of mass destructions or make nuclear alternative energy sources and so on. In fact, science, because it's a human discipline, is, is flawed as an establisher of truth. That's been shown in all sorts of different ways, and there are many articles out there that you can look at. Here's just a few. The bottom one here is from the BBC. Most scientists can't replicate studies by their peers. It's about the reproducibility project. They try to reproduce five landmark cancer studies They only found two out of five to be repeatable. That's concerning. It's worrying, writes Dr. Errington, because replication is supposed to be a hallmark of scientific integrity. The director of the Sainsbury Laboratory at the University of Cambridge says it's maybe less likely to be due to fraud. It's about a culture that promotes impact over substance, flashy findings over the dull confirmatory work that most of science is about. It means we've got to look beyond humanity for answers because we're flawed. We're not good at finding truth. We've got to look outside ourselves. Obviously, we've got to look to God and to his truth that we can trust. And it means we've got to turn and repent, confess and repent of pride in trying to find truth ourselves and hear the truth that God would have for us through the scriptures and experience the truthfulness of it. 
I'm not going to make a case today for the truthfulness of Scripture because I believe one of the ways that God proves Scripture true is by people hearing it, believing upon it, and obeying it and living it out. It says here in these verses that this word of truth came by hearing it. Are you hearing God speaking through the scriptures? Are you saying that when he writes <laughs> a power of the Holy Spirit through Paul to you, saying that through faith in Christ, that you are chosen, that you are predestined, that you are adopted, that you are beloved, that you are redeemed, that those are more true about you because it's God's capital T unchanging truth than any, any other attempts to claim the truth in this world? It really is good news because this is true and it comes by by hearing. Are you hearing? Are you listening? Are you making room for God to speak to you in your daily life? Have you lost some of the disciplines, some of the rhythms and life giving routines that you had pre lockdown? But lockdowns made them a little bit lost to you. I would encourage you start again, begin again, get reading God's word every day. Trust him and listen to his truth to speak to you, to transform you. It really is true. Don't let yourself soak in the puddle of postmodern relativistic little t truth. No, ring all of that out and let yourself soak in the glorious reservoir of life that is God's truth. And it comes by hearing that we believe upon it. And therefore, if it comes by hearing, not just that's how we receive it, but how others will receive and be able to believe upon it. And that means that our lives need to speak the message of the gospel because you may be the only Bible that other people get to read. So how can our lives be so full of the goodness of God? How can they speak this message of the gospel of truth with boldness and power? Well, that's the next point. Point number three is it's an experienced gospel. This is pretty controversial. I want to give you a little bit more arguments just so you can ground where we come from as a church on this issue. It's not primary gospel truth I personally would die for, but it's important so we don't miss out on all that God would have for us and so that we don't lose out on being clothed with power to do all that he's called us to do. It's an opinion that's held by many of the Puritans, Thomas Goodwin being a chief example of that, and by the famous former minister here, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Just so you know, it's not some esoteric viewpoint of Howard. There's some robust, far more knowledgeable uh, than I pastors who hold this viewpoint. And the viewpoint is essentially that the Holy Spirit, of course, is at work in the hearing and believing part of salvation. That there is, if you like, an eternal salvation seal on a person but there is a sealing of the spirit that's about assurance and anointing in power that doesn't give us, it doesn't make it sure, it makes our experience of salvation more sure. And there's a delay in that coming about. Here are four reasons for why I would hold that view. The first of those is the very language that's used, that hearing and believing are the ones that are linked together, not believing and sealing. In fact, it's not here what you might see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, where there's a believing and rejoicing. There's sort of believing, yea, rejoiceth that's going on there in that way the language is described. There's more of a separation and a pause before the word sealing enters on the scene. And having believed and after believing, then 
the ceiling happens. That's the suggestion. It's not certain, but it's strengthened by point number two, that it, the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit of promise. It's quite significant, the promised Holy Spirit. That takes us to the promises in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit, Joel chapter two, particularly being poured out on all flesh. That's fulfilled in Acts chapter two and Peter quotes that chapter, this promise being fulfilled. Jesus himself uses the very language of promise in Luke's gospel, the first century gospel, right at the end of it and in the beginning of his sequel, the book of Acts, um, talking about waiting, telling his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit, for the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit to come to you. Point number three is that we often get confused by terminology and we shouldn't because most, if not all of these descriptions that relate to being baptized or filled or sealed with the Holy Spirit are talking about one and the same experience, a first experience and then an ongoing set of experience we're encouraged to seek. And the language is used interchangeably. And so sealing in the spirit, we would expect to have the same sense to be included in this language. At the end of Luke chapter, uh, Luke's gospel and into the beginning of Acts, the same description is used four times of being filled with the Holy Spirit, being clothed, baptized, receiving power and having the Holy Spirit poured out. The fourth reason is the very context of Ephesians. The whole letter that it's about God's ultimate purpose. Chapter one, verse 10, the cosmic reconciliation of all things made known to us and made visible through the church, the coming together of Jew and Gentile. We've noted the context of you also, Gentiles being included. So I think a parallel passage for us to read along with this section would be Acts chapter 10. And a dream that was given to Peter three times to help him understand that God wanted to include the Gentiles in his plan of salvation. And so Peter is called to go to a Roman pagan Gentile soldier, Cornelius, to preach the gospel to them. And as he does so, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. As they believe, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They are amazed at this. The gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out even on the Gentiles and what happens? They speak in tongues and they extol God. And this becomes the sign later in Acts chapter 15 that the Gentiles truly are included because they've experienced this sealing of the, of the Holy Spirit that we ourselves experienced at Pentecost. That's why I, I think there is something more for every one of us to pursue. What is this experience? Well, let's let scripture define it for us. I'm going to quick fire share some scriptures with you and just trust that you'll go away and read them for yourselves. First, Jesus, Matthew chapter one, he's born of the spirit. Matthew chapter three, he's baptized though in the Holy Spirit and the father speaks over him. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus's disciples, John chapter 14, they already believe, but Jesus promises them that the comforter, the fortifier, the Holy Spirit would come and that they shouldn't mourn or grieve because when they receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus will be closer to them than he was even when they lived physically with him. That's amazing. 
for you, for, for you and I, for us, that through the Holy Spirit, we can be closer to Jesus than even those disciples who walked and talked and ate fish with him were. Then we have Acts chapter 8. The Samaritan Christians receive the word of God and then later the apostles come and pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 9. Paul sees the risen Jesus. He's called by Jesus. I believe he's saved by Jesus. Three days later, he's prayed for by Ananias to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we've noted Acts chapter 10 and what happens with Cornelius's household there. And then into Acts chapter 19, the Ephesian they're believers, they're called disciples. That almost always means believers. And Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? When you believed, he's assuming upon their belief, their salvation, but he's not assuming that they've had this experience of sealing in the Holy Spirit, being filled, baptized, clothed with power. And he wants to make sure that they've had all the fullness that they can have in Christ and will go on seeking that as a result. There are many different descriptions of how this filling of the Spirit impacts people. Jesus was sent out by the Spirit to face temptation. The Holy Spirit gave him courage to face satanic temptation. Peter, once a coward who denies Christ, is emboldened with power to preach the gospel with such authority to go the way of his master, come hell or high water, I don't care if they kill me. He preaches it and 3,000 get saved. The whole rest of the story of the book of Acts is not the acts of the apostles, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the lives of very ordinary people, uneducated fishermen, people of no repute or, or, or given much respect in society. What hope there is for us in that Westminster Chapel. He could use you and I, the ordinary people of the world, become extraordinary under the power of the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues, new languages, there's prophecy, there's even artistic creativity that's given. The first person filled with the Holy Spirit Exodus chapter 31 was Bezalel. Wow. He's the great artisan, the kind of artist designing, shaping up the tabernacle. God empowers people for kingdom impact. It's not just sort of in this small sphere of the church. It's the whole kingdom that God wants to give us assurance and anointing and power to bring his good news to. So many ways that people experience this that we see in scripture and that we've seen in our own experience as a church and as a movement, that yes, people fall down, but people also cry. People sit still and just soak in a deep sense of God's love for them. Some people shake, some people laugh, <laughs> just great joy. Others are emboldened in moments to do things for the glory of God. There's no precise definition. We're just called to seek him, believing that God knows exactly what experience of him that we need. There are many examples from history that can encourage us. Uh, Lloyd-Jones and his phenomenal sermons on the book of Ephesians, um, he lists a few. Jonathan Edwards, also known as America's greatest historian, describes a wonderful experience where he's out in the woods and he's so moved by a vision of Jesus, his excellency, love and glory, that for about an hour he's in a flood of joyful, moving tears. Or there's Wesley, who wasn't converted, I believe, when he says he felt his heart strangely warm, but was actually being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's an inner warming of, 
of God's love to us. D.L. Moody describes such an experience of God's love for him that he had to ask God to stay his hand. And from that moment, that sealing baptism experience that Moody had, his ministry was just supersized and enlarged by the anointing and power of God. God just doesn't want to stop at you knowing ideas about him. He wants you to experience the full reality of him. Perhaps the best summary of this comes from Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a guarantee, as a down payment to give us absolute assurance of our adoption, that we are heirs, that we will get everything. If you like Jesus's baptism in the Holy Spirit, this sealing, it can also be ours as believers, that Jesus's authentication, his stamping, sealing with anointing, authority and power as the Son of God, it can be ours, it can be yours as a child of God. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? How do you seek this sealing? Well, the Holy Spirit is sovereign and he does go where he wills, but God has given us clues of how to seek him out. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this will now happen because Jesus has been glorified and the Holy Spirit has been poured out. So we come, we come acknowledging our thirst, acknowledging our dryness, that it's been a long time since we really knew this feeling, this deeper experience. Maybe you've never experienced it before. Now, don't let that condemn you. It doesn't mean you're anything less than anybody else. Let it stir you to press in that there is more, that there is more for you to experience and enjoy of God. We must acknowledge our thirst and then come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Make him everything in our minds. Come to him through the word to behold him and his beauty and his glory, to fix our eyes upon him. And in doing so, we must add Luke chapter 11, verse 13. How much more will your heavenly father, the greatest father in the world, pour out the Holy Spirit on those who ask him? We must pray. We must pray. We must pray. Yes, on our own individually, maybe with a few key friends in our life groups. But hey, we must pray in the way that the early church prayed that led in time to Pentecost coming 120 together in unison. Yes, they were different, diverse. Maybe they would have preferred to pray in different ways in their own time and agendas. But they sacrificed all of that to be together so that they could have one voice crying out in unison. In the words of Thomas Goodwin, to sue God for the Holy Spirit, to plead upon his promises in, in importune ways. God, do, do, Lord, what you promised that you would do as cheeky children of God, saying to God, come amongst us. We need you. We're hungry for you to move. Don't allow for any possibility that through your busyness or your indifference or your preference to pray in other ways to 
cause a sense of division and lack of togetherness that might stop the Holy Spirit from coming upon us and blessing our unity and togetherness and pouring out his spirit. Join us to pray. 10.30 every Sunday. Make it a priority. Be with us. Make every effort to be with us. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, to pray at 12 minutes past 12 every Monday. I plead with you, church, if we want to see lives transformed, if we want to see revival, if we want to see God glorified in this city, we must cry out to him to be clothed with power. I should say as well that the Holy Spirit is a holy spirit. And that means, therefore, that we must confess and repent of any sins that would grieve him, that would keep him away, that would push him away, rather than inviting him down through our confession and repentance, bitterness, unforgiveness, our pride, its horrible stinkiness of our, our sin. And God will find us so irresistible. We will become like dry tinder for the flames of the Holy Spirit to come upon and we will burn for his glory. And the whole city of London will come and watch us burn as a holy boldness comes upon us. Yes, individually, wherever we are in all sorts of different types of work that we do, but collectively and together. Oh, wow. I tell you, we're going to see God move. The Holy Spirit is coming and he is stirring Westminster Chapel to seek him like never, ever before. We're on the inside now. And we haven't just been brought into the hallway. <laughs> We're right in the heart of God's most holy place with our heads on his bosom experiencing his embrace through the cross. We are so loved. You are so loved. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit makes that more real than ever to us, that we are afraid of nothing and no one, but we live with a holy joy for fear of God in our hearts that seeks us, to, that stirs us to do extraordinary things for him. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for our salvation. Thank you that we've heard, many of us, and we have believed. Help all those who are hearing for the first time to take that next step to believe upon you and to be saved. For the rest of us, though, we ask you, Father and Son, send and release your Holy Spirit right now. Come and fill our hearts with your love, seal us up with authority and assurance and empowerment. Help us know how precious we are to you. Help us know how precious your church, your bride, local and global is to you. Help us to know how precious the lost are of this city to you. Help us to know how precious the poor are in this city to you, God, and give us a holy boldness and a courage and power and anointing and gifting to go forth, to seek your face, to pray together, to call on you. But Lord, that your spirit would come and fall on us, that we might make you famous in this city. In Jesus' name.
Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.